So let's jump right in. I know your time is limited. Uh, we are with uh, Representative Sarbanes, who we had the pleasure of talking to. Heck, I guess it was last year, maybe even year before last. It was before the election. Uh, discussing this show's favorite piece of legislation since we ever were born, which in fact was HR1, the act with many layers to help save American democracy. There have, of course, been a bunch of pieces of news since then. And rather than running through all of that, let me introduce the good congressman to help us walk through some of that. Representative, thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, it's for great to us. be with you today. Looking forward to it. So the short version, as I understand it, is that there was not a Democratic Party landslide in the uh, 2020 election. Uh, there was a Democratic Party victory. So uh, there looked like there's a chance to have a bill, but there doesn't look to be any Republican support for that bill. At least I, I actually I should put that as a question. Maybe there is just unknown at this moment. And so where, where does H.R. 1 stand right now or a Senate, uh, a Senate cohort of it? I, pretty soon we'll get to sort of the mansion stuff, yeah. but get, where do you think things are landing? Let's step back for a moment and just recognize that we not only had an election in November, we had an election on January 5th, which actually determined the opportunity we're in right now. Those were the two runoff elections in the state of Georgia. So we came off the November election, which left the House of Representatives with Democrats marginally in control. And at that point, the Senate looked like it probably wasn't going to be in Democratic control and we would have to just take this bill and put it on a shelf. But the spirit yeah. of John Lewis was very much in the air. And on January 5th, you got these two victories in Georgia, which created a tied Senate uh, broken by with the possibility of breaking that tie in, 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 in every instance with the vice president's vote. So now Democrats have an opportunity to go do something quite consequential in this moment, which is to try to fortify the democracy of the American people pulled back from the brink in November, but is clearly still in a very fragile state. So we passed it twice in the House, once in the 116th Congress, again on March 3rd of this year in the 117th Congress. It's in the Senate where the drama is playing out right now. I think we can get it over the finish line. It's not going to be easy, but I think before August, we're in time for the beginning of August, however you want to frame it, we can get this bill passed in the Senate and onto the president's desk. And God knows we need it in this moment because we're seeing a rollback of voting rights, among other things, across the country at the state level. So the stakes could not be higher. This is the moment that we've been working for. If you're somebody who's a champion for dem of democracy and cares about these issues, this is the window of opportunity to get something dramatic done that can really propel our country forward. So it's all in, it's all hands on deck, it's whatever metaphor you want to use. Uh, we got to get to the top of the mountain. We got to do it in the next few weeks. Let's do a quick review of the elements of the bill because yeah. in any compromise or any final bill, much of what will be debated are those elements, either changing those elements or swapping some things in or uh, taking some things out. So there we know is uh, redistricting reform. We know is Kimmy finance transparency. We know is voting rights and voter access protections. 
feel free to go deeper on those. And also just to give the uh, at least treetops view of other elements that I missed. Well, for starters, um, in contrast to what Senator Mike Lee of Utah would have you believe, this bill was not written by the devil. It was actually written by the American people. And I say that because it was very much constructed based on listening carefully to what Americans of all political stripes, not just Democrats, but independents and Republicans have been telling us for years. And we finally got it together into a coherent package of democracy reforms that really are premised on this idea that the voice of the average citizen out there has been pushed to the side of their own democracy and they want back in. And this is a way to let them back into their own democracy. So they're the ones that call the shots. So if you look at every piece of this bill, that's really what it's about in one form or another. So all the voting reforms that you mentioned are really the point there is, can we please just get to the ballot box every two years without having to run an obstacle course? And whether it's boosting up how we register people in this country or, you know, creating more opportunities and options for how people can vote, you know, by mail, early voting, election day, et cetera. That's just saying that people ought to be able to vote in America and we should be the gold standard among our peer nations on what it means to vote. We're far from that, but we can attain that if we pass this bill. You mentioned partisan gerrymandering. Everybody hates that across the political spectrum. And so uh, we would fix that. We would create independent commissions. We would backstop it with very uh, objective standards on how to draw lines so that it would be done fairly. And people would feel like when you show up in, in Washington as a representative, it's not because somebody gerrymandered your district. It's because the voters really wanted to send you there. Uh, so that's a key piece. A lot of things to address people's anxiety about election security, you know, foreign actors hacking into our elections or using digital ad platforms to spread disinformation. So we have a whole set of provisions there, creating more ethical transparency. So lawmakers and executive branch officials behave themselves when they get to Washington. And finally, again, you alluded to this, but cleaning up campaign finance making it so the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, which is kind of the cop on the beat, can actually function well, creating transparency so we know where this super PAC dark money's coming from, and standing up a new system for funding campaigns in America that's based on matching small donations. So candidates can run for office without having to go hat in hand to the lobbyists on K Street or the big donors or the PACs. They can turn to everyday Americans collect small donations, earn matching funds, and power their campaign that way. That would do a lot to clean up uh, the influence of money in our politics and the way we govern. That's the package. Again, pretty coherent and cohesive in terms of what the public wants to see. The challenge now is to get it over the finish line. And I think we can do that with more or less all of those core components I just mentioned to you intact. Obviously, you know, you have horse trading that goes on as you get closer to the finish line. Adjustments have to be made. The concerns of particular members need to be accounted for. But across those broad four or five categories, I think you're going to see the components of all of those things will be included in a final bill that we can get done and onto the president's desk. The priority of the bill in terms of the House governing caucus is made pretty clear by 
the number the bill was given. Very often, HR one is for you know. Former House Speaker Paul Ryan uh, had the Trump tax cuts introduced as HR one when he was in charge. This was introduced as HR one, uh, introduced on the first day of the now Democratic-controlled House in 2019. Uh, Mitch McConnell prevented a Senate vote, and after the 2020 election, it once again passed a House vote. This time, headed to a Senate at least nominally controlled by Democrats. This time, however, it's a different senator at least nominally Joe Manchin. And part of the question is, to what degree is it that, uh, is it that center? To what degree is he the cutout, mo mo most obvious figure representing the political challenge? And last week, a cloture motion was filed by the bill's Senate co-sponsor so that action on the bill might be imminent. What are the elements? So first of all, does it is it too reductive to say that Manchin stands in the way or that Manchin is the vote that is needed and if it is too reductive, what else, what other part of the dynamic should we understand? In addition to, of course, the fact that there is not a commitment by the Republican majority to take up some of these issues is itself pretty important. Uh, but yeah, help us understand the political dynamic a little bit. Yeah. So obviously in a 50-50 Senate, every senator on the Democratic yeah. side is important. You got to get all 50 votes. And that includes Joe Manchin's vote. Now, Senator Manchin has been very clear for a long time that he feels that democracy reforms of this scope and scale are ones that need to be passed in a bipartisan way. And so he has said he wants to find 10 good Republicans uh, that will support this bill. And he's been engaged in that effort for a while now. Most recently, I think, by sort of setting forth some of his own ideas about what within the bill should take priority, kind of what's his list of, of key components, which I think he's come to because he thinks, well, maybe that's got a shot at getting some of these Republicans. We'll see, because this, this week we're going to have a vote on a motion to proceed. So this isn't on the bill itself. This is a procedural vote where the majority leader in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, will make a motion to proceed to the bill. Now, he's already filed what's called a cloture motion, which is to, which is to end debate that could stop that. So we'll see if the Republicans can produce anyone to support moving forward in any kind of reasonable way here. We'd like to see all 50 Democrats vote to proceed forward with this process and are very hopeful that Senator Manchin will join uh, the rest of his caucus so that we get that 50 Democratic votes in support. But unless 10 Republicans show up to support moving forward, it's not going to happen this week. So then we're going to have to the Democrats on the Senate side are going to have to go back and sort of retrench and start thinking about what rules change, i.e. to the filibuster needs to be made uh, in order to get this done. So it's a step-by-step -step process. This week's important because it could begin to project democratic unity about the need to move forward. If you get those 50 votes in support of uh, moving to proceed to the bill, and when that happens, if the Republicans stand against it, which I expect they largely will, then I think Senator Manchin and others will say, well, you know, we've tried to get the Republicans to do the right thing here. 
But if they're going to keep leaning against it, then we need to stop having a conversation with them and start having the conversation amongst ourselves as Democrats. What's that bill ultimately need to look like? And what changes to the rules do we need to make to get it over the finish line? So then you move into the next phase of the conversation. So this process has always been a step-by-step thing Yep. where, you know, on one day we move a few steps forward and then the next week we find another path uh, to move it along. And that's very much the posture we're in right now. But I'm hopeful because, you know, history really is put us at a crossroads here. And there's a great piece by Taylor Branch, the Pulitzer Prize historian of civil rights of great acclaim. He wrote this week, and uh, that's available online, which talks about how this moment fits in into the historical context and very much recommend that to, to your listeners. Oh, that's very helpful. We'll, we'll post that. We'll also put it in the show notes. So I'm not going to ask you to predict because that prediction might have its might have elements of self-fulfillment or self-defeating. But it, it would seem to me that finding 10 Republicans to uh, stand against, let's say, Mike Lee or Mitch McConnell and say, yeah, we want to uh, proceed with the bill, that seems pretty hard. And so then you said the next step is to have a conversation about what might reform of that process look like. It seemed like most recently Manchin said, well, maybe, maybe five. If 10, if 10 isn't enough, maybe five. And that gets me then, I mean, you've been trying to work on the vote count, focus on the House, of course, but trying to get to the vote count for a while now. Do you think there might be five on the merits of the bill? Or are there, or are there five, that, five Republicans who, because Manchin was a, was a co-sponsor of the Senate version of this, right? Like he was, he was a supporter in the last stuff, Congress, in the last Congress, he co-sponsored the bill. He hasn't done it in this Congress, but the bill hasn't changed. I mean, it's essentially the same bill. So I thought he said it changed. Is that it, it, was there any that, like it? It hasn't. It hasn't really changed in any significant ways. In fact, the changes that have been made to it, which have been made recently by Senator Klobuchar and her committee, um, have actually been ones that are designed to address some of Joe Manchin's concerns, wearing his sort of former secretary of state hat and concerns about how local election officials, you know, can handle these requirements around registration and voting. So to the extent there's been changes, they've been moving to address concerns he has, not moving away from those. Um, So substantively, I think one could say he's more or less comfortable. I mean, he's put forward some ideas of things that he's particularly focused on uh, within the bill, but it's more about the process. It's more about this idea of, can you move forward with just Democrats if you can't get enough Republicans? I think moving it to 55 as opposed to 60 isn't going to solve the process problem because I don't see five Republicans, uh, let alone 10. I don't see five that are going to support this bill. But I think Joe Manchin is sincere in his desire to do the right thing at this moment for the democracy. And if he sees that the Republicans just aren't showing up, regardless of what kind of offer you make um, or how you kind of adjust the threshold, then I think he's going to be more prepared to look at a, a more dramatic 
reform of the, of, the, of the rules and one that would take it to a simple majority. So let's see how this week goes. Let's see what we all learn from the, the votes in the Senate. And then it sets up the next round of engagement in this process. I mean, we've moved a long way in the last two weeks because two weeks ago, Joe Manchin wrote an op-ed saying, I'm against the bill, not gonna vote for it, not gonna vote for filibuster reform. And within the last week, he started to put forward substantive ideas and thoughts around the bill um, and has shifted a little bit in terms of his conversation about the filibuster. So we're moving in the right direction and that's, that's all we need at this point to know. And, and I've wondered if in Joe Manchin's mind, right? There's, I, I think about critiques of Joe Biden early when he was running for president uh, that were thoughtful critiques and I, I think not entirely accurate, but probably elements of insight that Joe Biden saw the U.S. Senate as still resembling the body he entered some decades ago where there was much more crossover in final vote tallies, right? But before sort of a big, there were still legitimately liberal Republicans and there were still legitimately conservative Democrats and you had many odd bedfellows that helped make bills happen. And th that reality was prior to the current you know, sort of cable news, huge, basically, prior to the impact of how much money is now dominating the entire political discourse that has started to carve things up. And so on one hand, I wonder if Joe Manchin misunderstands the, or I'll take myself out of it. I think there is speculation that maybe Joe Manchin misunderstands, thinks that, you know, finding 10 good Republicans is a pursuit for him and the president and for you and not merely a, uh, a pursuit of Don Quixote. But then there's another school of thought that says, well, no, maybe, maybe there's a path where there are five Republicans who would do this and do a more modest filibuster reform and do an infrastru infrastructure package. And that would be the grand bargain that got some stuff done. And then there's another school of thought that maybe more like you said as well. No, you just, you give it the college try, you push, you show good faith in negotiation, and then you change the process. If it turns out that that negotiation, you're not negotiating with anything other than a vending machine. There's no, there's no communication back. Which of those three viewpoints, there might be others, are entirely invalid, have more validity, any comment you'd have on any of that speculation? Well, I think the way to, to think of the filibuster in terms of kind of where's that threshold is, you know, the aspirational view of the filibuster, if you want to try to give as much credit to those who want to preserve it as you can, at least on the Democratic side, is that it helps promote bipartisanship in the Senate. Unfortunately, it also can be used if it's used cynically, and I would argue this is what the Republicans are doing. Um, it can be used to just weaponize partisanship. And that's how McConnell has used it over the last few years to block all kinds of legislation that majorities of the American people support. And by the way, majorities of Americans of all political stripes support this bill. So it's, it's all about where the line is. And I think, unfortunately, the Republicans now have gotten so conditioned to winning elections by suppressing the vote through partisan gerrymandering, using big money to spread disinformation. They just can't let go of that formula. So they've got kind of an instinct around it. And if the reform we'd like to put forward is really designed to challenge any of those things in a meaningful way, 
they're just not going to be able to help but lean against it. I think that's what you're seeing play out. You know, they're obviously against the For the People Act, but even the proposal that Manchin was putting out there over the last week, within 24 hours, they held a press conference, 20 of them, led by McConnell, to say, no way, we're not doing this. And these are putting in place tools that Many Americans used last time, you know, mail-in voting across the country, no act, no excuse, absentee ballot voting, early voting, fixing partisan gerrymandering, which they're against. These are all reasonable, non-controversial things. And yet every chance they get, the Republicans are standing up and railing against it. So I think we just have a divide here that cannot be bridged. And I think many Democrats have seen that for a while. Other Democrats are coming to it more recently. I think Joe Manchin, to his credit, is trying his damnedest to try to bridge the divide. But if he starts to see that on the substance of what needs to happen in this critical moment for our democracy, you can't bridge that divide, then I think he's going to start looking more closely at what it means to reform uh, the filibuster so that process and a procedural rule don't somehow overwhelm America's right to vote, America's right to be heard. That's what's at stake here. Lincoln actually spoke of, there's a great quote in this Taylor Branch piece, you know, West Virginia seceded from Virginia because Virginia was going in the Confederate direction and West Virginia wanted to be with the Union. And so you know, Lincoln heard critics of that saying, well, secession's okay when it's your secession. And Lincoln's response was, well, if you want to call it by that name, then certainly there's a difference between secession in favor of the Constitution and secession against the Constitution. And I would argue as well, partisanship to preserve the democracy is better than bipartisan, in a sense, um, passivity in the face of a threat to democracy. And if you look back historically, after the Civil War, during the Reconstruction period, there were nine pieces of legislation between 1866 and 1890, including the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, the Ku Klux Klan Act, the Voter Enforcement Act, all designed to move America forward in terms of demo its democratic tradition. One party, at that time, the Southern Democrats voted uniformly against that. There was not a single vote cast by the Southern Democrats in Congress and either the Senate or the House for any one of those nine bills. So if you cling to this notion that in these critical moments for our democracy, you've got to get the other side to come along with you to do the right thing. If that had applied back then, we wouldn't have the 14th Amendment or the 15th Amendment. Let me give you another way of looking at this. The House of Democracy is on fire. Democrats have all the tools we need to put it out. We're standing on the front lawn. We've got the fire hoses. We've got the axes. We've got everything we need. On the other side of the street, Mitch McConnell and his team of arsonists are standing there with their arms folded. And the notion that we wouldn't pick up the fire hoses until we can get a couple of them or 10 of them to come over and help us when we have the ability to put this fire out, to me seems absurd under these circumstances. So this is a moment where if we have to go it alone to do the right thing for the democracy, 
that's what we need to do. I think Americans expect us to do it. I think Democrats are moving to that realization in the Senate and the combination of all of these things will get us where we need to be in the next few weeks. There are at least two insights. One is the question of that this is the fight for democracy. The Republicans are working as a, and in order to continue to be an anti-majoritarian party uh, and trying to tear down structures of democracy in order to retain that. Therefore, the case you make is that this is where the fire hoses are needed. This is where you have to use the tools that exist, even if it means changing past rules. The second one then is the question about, is it worth it? Now, and when I say, is it worth it? The question of, is, is democracy worth getting rid of the filibuster? That's an easy question. Anybody who'd care, give a damn about this conversation would say, well, yeah, procedural rule in the US Senate is not as important as making sure the overall functions of democracy work. The people who might even agree with you, and I even say me on the merits of the bill, but who were skittish about filibuster reform, and it, it begs that we talk about filibuster reform, right? I mean, we want to talk about the bill, but it requires us to talk about filibuster reform. We'll say, well, yeah, but then wait until blank year when the shoe is on the other foot. And then, you know, Republicans will be able to do the same thing. One counter is, well, they might do that anyway. So, you know, don't fret about that. My question is a little more particular. It's just about the timing of this. If HR1 or the For the People Act or some iteration of it could in fact deliver a more majoritarian system, a system that actually was more responsive to the needs of regular people in the United States, that made it so that uh, the fringe of a political party, you could say the Republican Party, you could say the Democratic Party as well, was not governing every single congressional seat, right? If, if, if redistricting happened so there was more seats in play, so that you weren't only worried about what Breitbart or Fox News or, you know, pick your favorite outlet had to say, but all where Donald Trump tweeted, right? If he were still allowed on Twitter, but that you actually tried to build a voting coalition in, you know, suburban and exurban districts and heck, even in urban and rural districts that resembled the overall thoughts of the country, that wouldn't only be worth it because it's important, it would be worth it strategically, right? Because then for, for the redistricting that's coming and for the, and for the elections that are coming, you'd have a, a, a different system, be different enough that not having a filibuster would not be as scary a proposition, even if power were to switch. Did I essentially put words correctly in your mouth, incorrectly, you want to respond to that? And no, also I agree about with, the timing. I, I agree with you 100%. First of all, let me get back to the first thing you said. Will the Republicans get rid of the filibuster when they next get the chance? I'm absolutely convinced of that. Yeah, so yeah. it's not like if we play nice, they're going to play nice on the other side of this. Their party, their posture is too far gone at this point. Just listen to the statements that they make. I mean, I hear them all the time on the House side, but they're coming from Senate Republicans as well. I mean, what they will do with power when they next get it, I think should make us all uh, shudder. To the point where, like, you talk about sometime in the future. I don't know what the future looks like if we don't get this done. Even if I were to subscribe to the notion that they might play nice later, which I don't, I don't think there is a later if we don't get this done. Because, again, the interests that seem to be dominating that party and have hijacked it. I mean, only 35 out of 211 Republicans voted for a bipartisan commission on the House side to study the January 6th attack. And McConnell filibustered against it in the United States Senate. This is a bill that the Republican ranking member of the Committee of Jurisdiction was beseeching his colleagues to support in the House. Nine out of 10 of them voted against it. I mean, that's all you need to know about what's happened to that party. So, but the other point you make, I think, is really critical. And it's something I've been talking about. Right now, the 
Republican Party doesn't have to win based on ideas. If you can manipulate the political town square, the electorate that shows up by using voter suppression, partisan gerrymandering, money to spread this information, you don't have to worry about being accountable to a diverse American electorate. And as a result of that, you don't have to police the extreme voices in your own party because there's, there's no consequence for not doing that. So you get these voices coming in and they get traction. If we figured out how to allow a diverse American electorate to show up at the polls every two years, then every party, including the Republican Party, would have to win on the basis of their ideas. And they'd have to go flush out some of these extreme voices, these radical voices inside their party, because they would not win otherwise. And what would that do? That would mean a better Republican Party. As Taylor Branch said, it would push the Democrats and the Republicans to higher ground. And then, as you point out, you wouldn't have to be as anxious or worried about what Republicans might do in the future if they get control back, because the Republicans that would get control would be a different kind of party. They'd be a party more accountable to the broad, diverse American electorate, which is exactly what we want. We want a healthy two-party system in this country that's responding to the concerns of everybody out there in the country, not acting sort of reflexively based on this toolkit of voter suppression that they've developed over the last you know, 10, 15, 20 years. That's what this can do. This can create just a better environment for our democracy and our politics going forward. And that's why I think it's supported so broadly out in the country. People can feel that instinctively. They know that that's what this is about. Yeah, no, we talked to the folks in Michigan who, who passed judicial reform in that state. It passed despite strong, well-funded opposition. There was strong support for it. Uh, a question I sure know the answer to is the timing of the redistricting portion. For how many states will that be in time to impact the congressional election in 2022? All of them, most of them, some of them? Well, all of them in this sense. I mean, we require an independent redistricting commission be established in every state. Now, in some places that may be difficult because from a timing standpoint, just getting a commission stood up in a way that can actually carry out its functions will be a challenge. Because, you know, the, the data, frankly, the apportionment data from the census that's coming out late to begin with. And then if you don't get this bill passed until sort of early August, the directive to go build commissions is coming at a point that could be a challenge for some states. But we've backstopped it by saying there's going to be a set of very objective independent standards that will operate. So however the districts are drawn, whether it's by commission or some other way, it's going to have to meet those standards of fairness. And that will apply to the drawing of district lines for the 2022 election and for the next five cycles until we get to the 2030 census. So that's how it's designed. So even if there are states who slow walk their commissions, or or, or maybe unintentionally, they do their best, but they can't, but the district lines are drawn under the current system, right? Some presumably already started their processes even without the data uh, at some level. And I know that's true in our home state then those lines can still be challenged on the basis of the new legislation. Correct. Uh, and then the counter being, well, yeah, but they'll go before district and circuit courts that have a whole lot of nominees that came out of the same movement that has been trying to suppress votes and you know, limit the Voting Rights Act. You, you fear any of those courts, maybe just worth it because you got to do it anyway. 
but any well, we've, part of we've that also, we should think about. Yeah, we've also built in the legislation that the primary recourse in the courts will be the DC circuit for most Got of it. these challenges. Yeah. So we're we're prepared to make sure that those standards are protected because we know that's what the public wants to see. And that means if a state is going about this process in a good faith way, legitimately trying to achieve the drawing of district lines to reflect what the vote has been in that state, mm -hmm. they should be fine. Mm -hmm. But if a state like Texas mm -hmm. or Florida or these other places where we know they're getting ready to use their software to put the gerrymandering on steroids, if they're going to continue to do that, then they would run headfirst into these standards and would not be able to meet them. And then those maps would be struck and would be drawn by courts instead. This is really helpful. We, we've already gone over the time that you and your staff had allotted. Uh, that does not mean I'm interested in cutting you off. Heck, I'd stay here all day. Uh, but I want to make sure the next time we invite you, you don't think we're a bunch of liars. So that you actually take the meeting. I want to say thank you so much for this. This is, I, it was not an overstatement. When, when this was released, it was literally the favorite piece of legislation our little crew has ever seen. Uh, on all of the stuff that, you know, why this little court sits, right? The, the, this, uh, these conversations happen. So thank you so much for being generous with your time, Cong Congressman. Thank you for your work on this. I hope we will have a chance to talk again, and maybe even with some good news. Well, I appreciate it and your interest and the support for this. I would say we very much are in the home stretch and having every person out there who cares about this add their voice to the chorus and to the pressure and keeping the temperature high is what's going to make the difference. Uh, we can't afford to leave any voice behind at this point. The good news is that my experience is all people need to do is read like a one pager of the highlights of this bill. And that is activating. Like this bill is. Oh, we should put that, you know, Oh, representative, we should put that in the show notes and post that as well. Cause what I heard you yeah. say is people should be posting. They should be calling into their favorite, whatever uh, they should be. They should be spreading it electronically, however they can in their own words. And in the words of that one pager, if you, if you'll share that with us, we can at least share it with listeners and people can hey, yeah. make, their, yeah, we'll make up their minds. Thanks very much. All right. All right. Appreciate yeah. you. Democracy nerds recorded in sunny Portland, Oregon, produced by Kyle Curtis. Thanks also to technical producer, Sig Seeliger. Logo designed by Kat Buckley at kbuckleygraphics.com. I am Jefferson Smith. Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review. Hope you will. And follow Democracy Nerd on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Past episodes of the show, Democracy Nerd, can be found online at democracynerd.us. Go America. Thank you. Thank you, Democracy Nerd.